God is there with us and He hears us and He's near us. Especially in times of crisis, God is there. I read recently Henry Kissinger when he was Secretary of State commented to the media as they were questioning him about various crises confronting our nation and the presidency that, you know, which he was serving. He said, quote, I don't have time for a crisis. My schedule is already full. You can echo that sentiment, I'm sure, can you? Sometimes you're like, hey, if you're a crisis on the horizon, not this week, please. But crises don't ask for permission, do they? They just show up. Hezekiah was facing three crises as well in the chapters of Isaiah 36 through 39. Will you turn there? And let's look this morning at his responses to at least three crises that came into his life. And then let's notice how God responded as well. As you're finding Isaiah 36, let me remind you that these chapters in Isaiah... 36 through 39 are just a few of the historical narrative chapters that we have, all right? Now, now follow closely here. Much of Isaiah, the majority of it is, just, is a prophetic Old Testament poem in many ways. But there are a few times in which it becomes very narrative. And these are at least three or four chapters that are historically narrative. And they act as a bridge between uh, the first part of Isaiah and the second part of Isaiah. And I want you to notice something interesting. Isaiah is almost like a, a microcosm of the Bible. You know there's 66 chapters in Isaiah? How many books of the Bible are there? 66. And you know that Isaiah is divided into two sections. Isaiah 1 through 39. How many Old Testament books are there? And then Isaiah 40 uh, through 27. Which How many New Testament books are there in the Bible? And these chapters, 36 through 39, kind of act as a bridge between those two sections. Now, understand, in the first uh, 39 chapters of Isaiah, uh, Sennacherib and Assyria were the predominant characters. And as we move into chapters 40 through the end of the book, uh, you're going to find that the predominant characters are um, Babylon, and, and, and they're, over, um, they're taking over Jerusalem. So you're going to see a shift in characters, a shift in emphasis, and that takes place here in these chapters. And we're going to look at them this morning. Hezekiah is the real primary focus. He was Judah's greatest king. He took charge when he was 25 years old. And Hezekiah is now 39. He's 14 years into his reign. Look what the Bible says in chapter 36. In fact, I'll just simply briefly describe for you the crises. And then I want you to notice the prayer that he prayed. We're going to focus this morning on his prayers to God in the middle of these crises. But chapter 36 is actually the very first of the crises. It's the crisis of what I call of, uh, of invasion. Assyria and Sennacherib, that's an interesting name, isn't it? It's a good name for a ruler. Sennacherib, they were about to actually invade. In fact, they had invaded 41 cities in the nation of Judah. So they were on a roll. And Jerusalem was in their sights. But before they got to Jerusalem, they began to send letters and different messengers, and they were trying to barter a deal with Jerusalem. Now understand something, first of all. Jerusalem had already set up some type of alliance, probably with Egypt and some of the neighboring cities and and nations. So they were uh, already trying to protect themselves in alliances. But Assyria knew that, and so they were trying to break the alliance, and, and a lot of that's happening in chapters 36 and 37. And so you read about letters being written, you read about officials who are commenting back and forth to the king and so forth. Make a long story short, 
Hezekiah received some letters from Assyria and from Sennacherib and so forth. And when he got them, instead of trying to go to his advisors with them, instead of trying to figure out how he could answer them humanly, look at verse 14 of chapter 37. Here's what Hezekiah did. An awesome response in the middle of a crisis. Hezekiah, verse 14 of of Isaiah 37, says this, Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. And then he went up to the temple of the Lord, and he spread it out before the Lord, almost as if saying, Hey God, I want you to read what they wrote. Now I'm sure that God knew it, but there's something uh, spiritually therapeutic in those kinds of actions, aren't there? Where you lay out your, your crises before the Lord. And Hezekiah... What does it say next? He prayed. Circle that word, would you? He prayed. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Circle that word here. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Circle the word see. And listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Circle the word listen. Three times Hezekiah says, God, I need you to respond. I need you to be true to your nature and see and hear and listen. God, respond to what's going on. Now, verse 18 describes what's going on a little more in detail. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples in their lands. They have thrown their gods in the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. He's just simply repeating the fact that Sennacherib and the Assyrian army were on no doubt a rampage, a military rampage, overthrowing various nations and cities. And he's stating the obvious. But we shouldn't be surprised because these other heathen pagan nations, they had nothing to stand up against Sennacherib with. But he says in verse 20, Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. You see, he's setting apart Jehovah God from all the other gods. And he's asking, now watch this very carefully, he's asking, he's petitioning, he's requesting God to to act, now watch this, in defense of his own name. In fact, I think it's odd that in this prayer, only once does Hezekiah actually ask for deliverance. But on multiple times, he appeals to God's character, doesn't he? You alone are God, you're the only God, and and you're the the only one that really can solve and, and defend It's almost as if Hezekiah is saying, listen God, we would love deliverance, but the bigger issue is God. Let them know that you are the only God. Be to all these other nations. Be to Assyria what we know you are, the one and only true God. I find in this prayer something very interesting. I find in in this crisis an intriguing response by Hezekiah that he prayed and expressed dependence on God's character. In fact, make a note of this, would you? God hears the prayer that expresses dependence on His character. Do you see what's coming first from Hezekiah's lips? It's not a prayer of of the spiritual 911 of the ATM. Hey God, here's my Christmas list. Could you solve this before midnight? But first and foremost out of Hezekiah's lips was, was a prayer dependent upon who God was 
not just what Hezekiah wanted. Amen? Sometimes my prayers are the opposite. I make sure I tell God what I want first, you know. And then I'm quick to say, oh, by the way, I know you can do this, and I'm kind of going through some things, but I'm trying to flip-flop my prayers and pray first and foremost with God's character in mind that He will do what is best for His kingdom and what will bring the most glory to His name. And if in doing that the outcome is pleasing to me, then hallelujah. But perhaps if the outcome for me personally is different, but God's name is honored among the nations and God gets glory, then I should be okay with that too. Because God's character and name are more important than my comfort. You see, I think we should start our prayers with who God is, not what we want. Now, this shouldn't strike us as funny because this is exactly what Christ taught His disciples, didn't He? Luke 11.2. Jot that verse down, would you? It says this. Uh, the disciples were asking the Lord, teach us to pray. And so He said, when you pray, pray like this. He said, our Father, there's the first name, who art in heaven. And then He said what? Hallowed be your name. Christ taught His disciples, when you pray, pray like this. In other words, start with God and His character. In that culture, your name was what's much more representative of your culture, uh, of your character than it is in this culture. Today we give names and they mean something, but they probably don't define who we are per se. For instance, my name means Sly Fox. Did you know that? Let's pray that's not what my character and reputation is. Amen? But in that culture, it was the opposite. Your name often signified and was and defined your character. And so when Christ told the disciples to start with God and who He is, it was a way to say, God, we believe in who You are. And we know You can act in accordance with who You are. We know You hear us and You'll respond. But more important than our own comfort and our own will is Your will and name and character. And by the way, if you ever wondered why we pray in His name, it's because that's the authority. That's where the authority and the power to even pray comes from. I mean, if I were to pray with our family and say, and so Lord, because of who I am, I want you to answer these prayers, that'd get about to the, to the light fixture, wouldn't it? But when I pray and plead upon the name of Jesus Christ, the name of God, then I'm, I'm showing God, you know, more important than me and more important than my way, you matter. So let's understand something about Hezekiah's response in this crisis. He started with prayer, yes, but his prayer wasn't a last-ditch effort for a rescue. His prayer was a call upon God's character. And in spite of an outcome that he wasn't even sure he would have yet, he said, God, be the one and only true God. Let's look at the next crisis briefly. It's Hezekiah's illness. It's in chapter 38. Again, let me explain just the, the situation to you briefly. Verse 30, uh, chapter 38 talks about Hezekiah became ill. Now, let me, let, me, let me briefly mention this to you. I think this illness was probably part of a larger saga here. I'm not sure if it happened directly after this uh, first invasion or maybe during. There's different thoughts on that from our various scholars. But I do think this. I do think the illness came. This is personal opinion here. There's no verse that bears this out specifically. But I think if you read Second Chronicles and Second Kings and you see some other passages about uh, Hezekiah, I think Hezekiah's deliverance 
from Assyria. How the angel came and slew 185,000. How God said, I heard your prayer, I'm going to answer you. I think Hezekiah became somewhat proud. Somewhat puffed up. He began to kind of gloat in his ability to escape what was going on. I believe if you read 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, you're going to find that Hezekiah became proud. And so God, I think, sent this illness, if not for the only reason, definitely in part to say, Hezekiah, don't forget who really answered your prayer. And I'd encourage in your small groups this week to check out those other passages, 2 Chronicles like around 29 through 32 and so forth. I think it's 2 Kings around chapter 18, around that area. So Hezekiah is ill, and the Bible says even to the point of death. And so Isaiah says to him, put your house in order, you're going to die. But Hezekiah in verse 2 of chapter 38 of Isaiah says this, he turned his face to the wall and he prayed. Here it is again. In a time of crisis, what does he do? He prays. And he says, Lord, remember how I have walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. He turns his face to the wall and he cries and he prays to God about the way he had lived his life. Look at the end of verse 5. It says, The Lord responded, I have heard your prayer and seen your tears. Here it is. God responding once again. Amen. Now, let me try to put this in perspective for you. It would be wrong to say that because God saw how good Hezekiah had been that he was going to now respond to Hezekiah's uh, sense of, of doing the right thing and so he's going to kind of repay. And that's not all that's going on here. I think what's happening here is this. Hezekiah is praying and saying, God, you remember how I've lived. You remember how, how I've, I, I tore down the shrines and the idols and I was walking faithfully. And so, though currently there is a pride going on, he says, God, if you'll let me live, I'll be, I'll go back to that. I'll live again as I lived before. There's this sense of confession and commitment in this prayer. Notice, I think Hezekiah is in a time of repentance, looking back to what he used to do and saying, God, if you'll spare my life, I'll live that way again. You see, there is something very supernatural about the prayer of confession. And commitment. When we say to God, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, you're right, God, and so from this point on, I'll obey what you say. God hears the prayer of a contrite heart. Amen? In fact, maybe jot this phrase down. God hears the prayer that expresses obedience to His commands. And that's exactly what Hezekiah was expressing here. He wasn't depending just on what had happened in the past. He wasn't saying, hey God, you owe me. No, he's saying, God, you know my heart. You know how I have lived. And God, that's how I'll live in the future. And if you read the other passages, Second Chronicles and Second Kings, you'll see that, that God did restore us health with the hope, so to speak. With the, with the confidence that Hezekiah would lead effectively. And so God gave him 15 more years. By the way, Another one of Judah's great kings, Josiah, the boy king, came during this time of his 15 years. Aren't we glad that God granted that request, so to speak, and, and that Hezekiah did live faithful in his last 15 years for Judah to experience another really great king in the, in the boy Josiah. Now, now, this idea of God hearing our prayers of confession and commitment is not anything new as well. When God knows the heart and He sees a willingness to obey, He responds to that. And when God sees a heart of disobedience, listen very carefully, church. When God sees a heart of 
of ignoring what he says, though he hears, he may choose not to respond. In fact, let me show you some verses that really bear this out, okay? Uh, the first one Psalm 66, 18. You might want to jot some of these down. The Bible says this, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Do you, do you catch that verse? I mean, sometimes we talk about how it's so great that, that God just hears me wherever I am. But the truth is, if we are intentionally walking in disobedience, God could choose not to respond. Are you listening to me, First Family? You're listening. Not to be mean or impolite, but let's speak the truth as it's laid out in Scripture. Sometimes we get upset with God that He's not listening. No, I'd say God's listening. Perhaps He's choosing not to act as we say because He knows we're intentionally disobeying. And when God sees us, say, Lord, whatever You ask, I'll do it. My heart is to obey. Often then our eyes are open and we see the doors and we see how God is operating and we then get in line with God. And we realize, wow, he's been listening all along. He's just been waiting for me to obey. First John 1 talks a lot about walking in the light as he's in the light. It says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. One of the ways we have fellowship with God with each other is by a, a, an openness and an honesty about our walk with God. If we are intentionally and consistently shielding and hiding our true spiritual uh, condition from God, which, by the way, He sees anyway, but if we think we're, we're hiding that, then God's going to appear distant. He's going to appear unresponsive. He's not unresponsive. He's listening. He hears, but He's choosing not to act in the way that you want Him to right now because He's trying to draw attention to something greater. Your lack of obedience. Are you with me, guys? I know that's difficult, but sometimes we want God to be there when we need Him. Oh, when things are going good, hey God, I'll I'll touch base with you later. And God's looking for a heart of obedience 24-7. heart that says, God, not my will, but Yours be done. Amen. So we obey even in difficult times. One of my favorite scriptures is James 5. It says that someone who's sick and thinks that their sickness may be because of a sin should call for the elders of the church, and the elders of the church should come and, and then anoint that person with oil, lay hands on them, and if they have repented and God has forgiven them, they'll be raised to help. The clear implication is that if the person will confess and ask forgiveness and say, God, I'll, I'll get rid of the sin I'm holding on to and I'll obey you, that God will hear and, and heal. I mean, there's no other way around this passage. And by the way, that passage along with 1 Corinthians 11 shows me something. There are people in church who are sick because of disobedience. Now, I know there's a flu bug going around. It goes around every year about this time, doesn't it? My wife's at home sick this morning, got a fever yesterday. We've had a number of things happen the last three or four weeks, and you have too. So not every, there's not a devil behind every bush, so to speak. I'm not saying that, but let's just be frank. Persistent, chronic illness ought to cause the Christian to say, now, now have I really exhausted every avenue of inspection? Could this be that perhaps I'm harboring disobedience in my life and God's not going to listen until I deal with the sin I'm harboring and hiding? Are you with me? You may think that sounds kind of spooky or odd, but it's just James 5 right out. And if it is a sin that's causing the sickness, God trying to get your attention, when there's confession and forgiveness... And a commitment to say, God, whatever you say, I'll do. I'll obey. Guess what? God says He'll respond and heal. 
So I think there's some real legitimacy and validity to understanding Hezekiah's prayer here. I have no doubt God was getting his attention. And he said, Lord, away with how I've been living. I know how I have lived wholeheartedly, faithfully. And I've been proud in the recent, but Lord, no more of that. I am now focused on living the way you called me to live. God raised him up and heals him. God responds, doesn't he? He responds to prayers that are dependent upon his character, but he also expresses a response to prayers that express obedience. So we see a prayer that's starting with God, watch this, starting with God, and then goes to us. Good order for prayer. Start with God, and then maybe let's get to our list or our items, shall we say. Now there's another crisis here that's mentioned. I want to just briefly mention this. It's in chapter 39. And it's kind of like the third act in this saga. Uh, Hezekiah is healed. He's given a couple of miraculous signs. Um, the sun makes the shadow go back up his staircase ten steps. He does go to the temple in three days. Lots of things here in this story that we just really can't cover because of time. But lots of things happen. Folks hear about it. Hezekiah once again has a great stature in the land. So some folks from Babylon hear about it. And they want to come and, and celebrate with him. But understand something. There's, there's something else going on under under the guise of celebrating with Hezekiah. And that is, these envoys from Babylon are trying to uh, scope out Jerusalem. They know that they escape Assyria's hands. So they're thinking, well, maybe we can have an inroad. And when we attack, when we choose to conquer, we'll know what we're getting into. And so they send some envoys. And verse 2 of chapter 39, look what it says. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses. The silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armor and everything found among his treasures. you see that? Hezekiah was so quick to respond to this invitation without inquiring of the Lord. This is the only one of the three crises where Hezekiah did not make prayer his first response. Notice how Isaiah responded to that. Verse 3, then Hezekiah, excuse me, then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, They came to me from Babylon, which by the way is the next city to overtake Jerusalem. It's the next focus of this book of Isaiah. And the prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures I did not show them. And then verse 5 begins the very first of prophecies. How Babylon will be the ones who will come in and take all those things they saw. Even some descendants. And we know that in 586, Babylon did invade. And they took many people captive. They overran Jerusalem. And this, that was the, the fulfillment of this prophecy. I think it's interesting that Hezekiah here, because he did not ask of the Lord, but instead relied upon his own wisdom and was self-reliant, his own pride, he got exactly what he asked for. Kind of ironic, isn't it? It's almost as if God knew, and, and, or not as if we knew God knew He was hearing, He was responding, but He actually gave Hezekiah what He asked for. He said, Hezekiah, if you're going to depend upon yourself and other nations, if your reliance is on things around you, then have at it. Now understand something here. God does not respond to prayers that express self-reliance, He makes no promises to hear us when we express pride. His character alone indicates that 
that he responds to the humble. But the Bible says in James, he opposes the proud. This is a good Old Testament illustration of that happening. Now there's something else even going on here deeper. Listen very carefully for his family. Babylon was predicted to overtake Jerusalem long before Hezekiah sinned in this chapter. This, this situation here was not the reason that God said, Babylon, go in and take over. But I do think God was testing Hezekiah individually to see if he'd be okay with an outcome that wasn't what he really wanted. I'd invite you to check out Second Chronicles. I believe it's in the chapter 32 range where the verse actually says that God left Hezekiah to see what he would do in a time like this. Speaking of this very story. In other words, what would we do in a crisis where we know the outcome is not going to be what we really want? There's no way this turns out to where I'm the hero and everything's happily ever after. This is not headed in the right direction. But what is in our hearts at those moments when God does respond and hear us, but perhaps the outcome is not as we want? Are we still going to remain faithful. And behind the national crisis, there's a personal one for Hezekiah. Here's what he should have said. He should have said, listen here, envoys. Thanks for dropping by and celebrating in my recovery. It's miraculous. It's all because of Jehovah God. And you know what? That's about the extent of your visit. You're not going to be able to see any of my uh, armories, you're not going to be able to see all the riches because you know what? Those are only signs. The real source is God. And if you want to know how all this happened, it's all because of Jehovah. Are you with me? He should have immediately said, hey, it's all because of God. Sometimes we get focused on the signs of success, quote unquote, and not the source. Amen? And when folks begin to talk to us or compliment us or want to know how, we quickly run and say, well, look at all this stuff, man. Look at this. And we, we go to the success factor when really what we ought to do is say, you know what, it's all because of Him. Regardless of the outcome, man, God is still God of the universe. Good or bad over here, it's all God. So three crises, two of them responded, uh, Hezekiah responded well and one he didn't. But in all three, we see a responsive nature of God. In every case, God was well aware. God heard. God was listening. And He was doing what was best in the, in the bigger picture. And He was hoping that Hezekiah, and work with Hezekiah, to get Him in line with that. And that's one of the odd things about prayer. It appears at times... Now watch very carefully. We'll just open up a good Pandora's box here. It appears that at times, our prayers change God's mind, don't they? That they affect a course of history. That they actually alter somebody's plans. And then at times it appears that, that while we're praying that, man, is anything going past the roof? I like what Alec Motyer says about this issue when he says this. Here is a mystery of prayer. It is a way the Lord brings His eternal counsels to pass. He performs foreordained purposes in answers to the prayers of His people. In other words, I like to see it that on this side of the door, it's like, wow, we prayed and look what God did. And that's true from this side of the, of the aisle, shall we say. From God's side, He's already sovereignly acting. 
And we're expressing our dependence upon Him. And He's saying, thank you, I've got it all under control, don't worry. I'm responding, it's in my nature to hear and listen and do. I'm glad you're acknowledging that though. It's, it's a tough one. So when Christ comes, we should be first and foremost willing to fall upon our knees and pray and say, God, Your purposes matter most. Hear us. Do what is best and know that regardless of the outcome... We're steadfast and solidly faithful to your purposes. That's why I think in 1 John, the real focus of this verse is on God hearing us. Back that slide up, Rich, would you? To the verses in 1 John. It's 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Uh, These verses talk about how God hears us. Listen very carefully, okay? John does not write about how God obeys us. Are you listening to me? He writes about how God, what? Hears us. What an interesting distinction. He says if we ask anything in His name, He hears us. The real focus of these verses by by John is not that, hey, you get what you want. The real focus is, hey, listen, God hears you. It doesn't really matter what you ask. The issue is not the thing that you're asking about. The thing is that you're talking to a God who is responsive in nature, who is accessible. So please, whatever you do, when Christ comes in the normal course of life, pray because He hears. And then know that His foreordained purposes are great enough that even if the outcome is not what you want, He is a God of response and He does what is best in the long run. His sovereignty and your dependence upon Him. Man, they go hand in hand. So let's pray every single day. Let's pray for God's purposes to be to, to, to find their final end. Let's pray that we'll be in line with them. It reminds me of Jesus Christ in the garden, doesn't it? He said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Remember that? That's a pretty honest president. If there's any other way to see redemption happen, then perhaps the cross and the, and the human agony I've got to go through, Lord, is there any other way? But not my will, but yours be done, right? Do you see what Christ is praying? He's not praying for results. He's just praying because he knows God's responding. And God chose to respond in a way, obviously the crucifixion, the agony, On the human side, to the man, Jesus, that was a tough call. On the divine side, it was the only way. The perfect lamb. Are you with me? And so Christ Himself even modeled for us how to pray. Not for results that we want, but for God's purposes. And yet in the whole thing, we pray constantly. That's our first first response. Let me leave you with two action points here as we head out today. So, Todd, what do I do with these three crises of Hezekiah? How do I, I live out God's responsive nature? I see in these chapters, and I understand in the Scriptures. How do I, how do I put this uh, into shoe leather? A couple things. Pray with alignment in view. In other words, pray uh, for God's will. That's the best way to pray, and that's the first thing to pray for. I know this is probably the one prayer that, and pardon me here, that most singles don't like to pray. I'll get calls frequently or I'll get emails and 
How do I find a husband? How do I find a wife? How do I... I pray God doesn't seem to be listening and I'll just say, you know what? Nothing wrong with wanting to be married, but pray instead just for God's will. Pray in alignment. Perhaps God's got something for you that only you can do as a single person. I don't know. So I just ask God, I just encourage Him to pray with God's will in view. Amen? And I say that to all of us married folk. I say that to all of us as individuals. Often we have preconceived agendas in mind when we approach God, don't we? I do. And you do as well. I know that Pastor Don in Mississippi did as they were raising funds for their building, as they were engaged in their own type of ministry. And the hurricane hit, and suddenly their plans were put on hold as they prayed for God's will. They began to realize God wants us to build houses here. And so they did. And they put off their plans for God's will. Are you with me? And that only came about in prayer. So as we pray, as we handle crises in a responsive way, going to God first in prayer, let's be concerned with His will. That means that sometimes in prayer, the first thing you do is listen. We come to God, we, we acknowledge His character and His name, we confess our sins, and then perhaps we just sit and listen. We, we wait. But Paul referred to this often as praying in the Spirit. I don't see that as some charismatic, confused kind of state or something that you're uh, gibbering and it's all about you. I see that as a very uh, 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 listening place to where the Holy Spirit is relaying to you the mind of Christ. And by the way, that's what 1 Corinthians 2 says you have. You have the Holy Spirit so that you may know the mind of Christ. So praying in the Spirit is listening and knowing the will of God, the mind of Christ. And often the best way to do that is to take these two lips and just not say anything. Now, I have problems with that because sometimes I fall asleep. You do that when you're praying? You're like, God, I'm just going to listen. And also I listen to my snoring. Or my mind starts wandering. And it lets me know how undisciplined in praying I really am. You ever felt that way? And when I truly pray in, in biblical ways, and I don't mean just dinnertime prayers or like a last-ditch, God, I'm, I'm going to bind here. But I mean... The daily closet secret praying that's talked about. That God sees and rewards in secret. The kind that you don't ever try to flaunt or people know about. Just the kind of praying where you say, God, I need you. We've got to make sure we're on the same page. That kind of disciplined praying is hard. We put our agendas aside and we say, God, your will matters most. But that's the way to pray, church. I think in the first two crises, Hezekiah exemplified that. He laid it out before God and he said, God, your will. Now, I have, I have something I'd like to see happen in that, God, yes. But more important than what I want is what you want, God. Here's a second way to pray as you leave here today. Pray with action in view. This is uh, regards your walk. You know, I, I had a friend say one time, and you've heard this before, he said, Pray as if everything depended upon God, and it does. And then work as if everything depended upon you. <laughs> and there's perhaps some human wisdom in that that may be well worth heeding. When you leave the prayer closet, and you know that God has called you to align yourself with His will, then live that out, church. Amen? If there's a relational issue, and you know that God is calling you to make it right, then when you leave the prayer closet... Find a phone. Get in the car and go see the person and say, listen, 
God's will is that there not be discord and disunity. And I just want to make things right. Are you with me? In other words, you can pray all day long about unity, but when something's wrong with someone else, if you don't go to them, that's like God saying, hey, I've made my will known. Now could your walk resemble that, please? Perhaps it's with giving. Perhaps it's with witnessing. It can be a number of things. As we pray and we understand God's will, then our actions should follow. This is the prayer of obedience in which we confess our sins and then after prayer, we walk in obedience to His will. So this week, two things ought to be happening. A church-wide group of people ought to be praying for God's will above all else. Amen? Above all else. Above all else. My plans above... Your plans above our church's plans. God's will. And you know, often those mesh. Amen? God's not a cosmic killjoy out to make sure that you don't get what you want, so to speak. That's not God at all. But I'm just trying to relate the fact that His will matters most. I think you get the point. So this, this week, a church-wide group praying, God, Your will first and foremost. And then God, wouldn't I know that will? Raise up a church-wide band of people who will live it out. Just do the next right thing. Can I say that again to you? Just do the next right thing. That's all you got to do. So Todd, I, I'm not sure what, how to put this into practice. Let's do the next right thing. That's all you got to do. And then once you do that, then do the next right thing. And you'll discover... You've taken step after step of obedience and that suddenly you'll be in a place so close to where God wants you to be. Right in line with His will that you'll be walking step by step with God. Just by doing the next right thing. You're walking His will. Those two things make for a great prayer life, don't they? That's the kind of responsive God we have who hears us, yes, relays to us His will, and then expects us to follow and obey it. As we do, we commune with a God who is responsive and accessible. A God who handles things in His predetermined way, who handles things sovereignly without independent control. A God we can trust completely. That's the God we're praying to. It reminds me of a, a missionary that I read about. He met God and God called him to mission service. A very famous missionary. and um, During the course of his mission life early on, he seemed to be struck with this physical malady. This um, illness. And he never could figure out what it was. And he writes that it was a real problem. And so in his writings, he began to ask the Lord, Hey, could you, could you just go ahead and take this away from me? He records for us that God gave him an answer. God said, no, I'm not going to take this away from you. And interesting that God heard and responded, but not in the way He wanted. Isn't that interesting? And so for the rest of this missionary's life, and in his incredible impact across the world, he lived with this physical defect of some type that though we don't know what it was, apparently was part of God's plan and actually was an answer to a prayer. So it accomplished God's will, but it really wasn't what this guy wanted. And yet, God heard and responded. And this guy I'm talking about is the Apostle Paul. 
And he did leave us this writing in the Corinthian epistles. He talks about this physical malady he was given, this thorn in the flesh, and he asked three times for God to remove it. And God said, no, but I'll tell you what, Paul, my grace will get you through it. And for the rest of Paul's missionary life, he apparently lived with some physical issue that I think, according to Scripture, kept him humble, but apparently gave him incredibly, uh, incredible open doors. And interesting, Hezekiah prayed, got what he wanted. Paul prayed, in this case, and didn't get what he wanted, but both had the same God who responded, and both were used for God's glory. Do you get the point first, family? Are you seeing it, church? We have a response of God. He is listening, and He does hear. Let us be quick to fall on our knees and pray to Him with the assurance that He'll do what is best in line with His will. And that our job is to simply obey whatever His will is. As that happens, God's kingdom is furthered. We're closer to the day when He reigns visibly once and for all on this earth. With all nations, all people, tribes and tongues and languages giving glory to Him. That's the picture we're a part of. Amen. We're the speck on that, on that line moving forward. May our prayers resemble the heart of someone willing to be in line with God's will and obedient in our walk. Let's pray.